So today we're looking at Psalm 16, a song of confidence and a confession of faith. So why did we choose Psalms for this particular uh, focus group series in the first place? Well, <clears throat> I'm sorry, it's my fault in part at least. I've never preached in the Psalms, and particularly when I'm taking the midweek fellowship services, where we're always looking for a standalone service, in other words, one that's not a series. I'd always thought the Psalms would be a good thing to, to preach from, but I've never done it. And as John Collard said last week, this book is high in the list of favourite parts of the Bible for many people. Andrew Rooney, a few weeks ago, had said it was a summer favourite of ministers. But where do, what of Clement? What is it, where does it rank in our teaching? I was surprised to hear during the week that some members don't particularly like the Psalms, that they teach little to our situation. And I had limited experience of hearing sermons on the Psalms, mainly Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, or Psalm 113, I to the hills will lift mine eyes. When our focus groups were restarting, Gordon Palmer had asked me if I had any suggestions for topics. I suggested a series on the basis of faith, or the Psalms. He chose the former. And if you, you look at the sermon archive on our website, which goes back to 2011, only about three, mentions, three sermons mention the Psalms in the readings. And it's very often along with other readings, so it's probably somebody who's been using the lectionary, where quite often the Psalms are one of the readings. So for this series, John Collard again said, any suggestions? And I said, Psalms. And he was happy if we could put it together, which Gordon McCracken has done. So who wrote the Psalms? We often think of them as the Psalms of David. And actually there were a number of other people who wrote the Psalms. Asaph, the sons of Korah, Solomon. Some even go back to the time of Moses. So when were they collected and who collected them? It's thought they were probably collect, co collected round about the 4th century BC in the time of the second or post-exilic temple, Herod's temple. And they were used in the temple and synagogues. So there were a collection put together by people of psalms from different places. It's a bit like the CH3 or CH4 or Mission Praise. And what does the word psalm mean? Well, John actually told you last week. I hope you all remember. Because the word psalm originally referred to instruments, to the harp, the lyre, the lute. Then it became, then it referred later to songs sung with their accompaniment. So that's why we sang our last song. Praise him on the trumpet, the psaltery and harp, on the timbrel, timbrel and the dance, with stringed instruments too, and the favourite of the drummers, praise him on the loud cymbals. I find it peculiar that some churches only sing psalms and insist that they have to be sung without any musical accompaniment. It just seems contrary to what was always done before. So David, David to me was quite a contradiction. 
He was a shepherd, a warrior, a musician. He was into praise and prayer. He danced and he was close to God. Look at his life, a shepherd boy. He killed Goliath. He was anointed, anointed king by Samuel. He was a musician to Saul, but then Saul saw him as a threat. He tried to kill David. He was in hiding as an outlaw. Later, he became king of Judah and Israel. He won famous victories over his enemies. He was dancing before the ark coming into Jerusalem. He was the ancestor of Jesus, as I say, quite a character. So we turn to today's psalm, Psalm 16. You might want to follow it in your pew Bibles or in your Bibles at home. So the first question I was going to ask, Anne's already answered. What's a miktam? And I was going to ask you because the answer is nobody actually knows. The only thing we do know about it is it's a superscription in the prayers of David when he was in great danger, like in Psalms 56 to 60. Psalm 16 is linked with Psalms 15 in temple worship very often. It was possibly written when David was in hiding as an outlaw, pursued by Saul and his men. He says, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. The psalm starts with a prayer for safekeeping. Petitions in the psalms are often quite short, but no less genuine for that. And there's really three parts to this psalm. The first part talks about the marks of the believer. God is the object of trust. He takes refuge in him. Verse 1, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. The Lord is sovereign Lord and completely sufficient for him. He desires no other good thing. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. He acknowledges the worth of and delights in the fellowship of the saints, the holy ones, the people set apart for God's possession and in whom his holy character is seen. Verse 3, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. We sing for all the saints. In the Apostles' Creed we say, I believe in the communion of saints. Our friends, our family, our church family. And the fourth mark of the believer shuns all false worship. Verse 4, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up thy names on my lips. Joshua, as he's near to death, says to the Israelites in chapter 23, verse 7, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. And John in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So what do we put our trust in now? In money, possessions, relationships? What or who are our idols? 
We have to trust in God and him alone. The second part of the psalm deals with the present blessings of the believer. First of all, a satisfied heart. Verse 5 and 6. Lord, you alone are my cup and my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. The cup was what a host would offer his guest an entry to the house. So a portion would be the gift of food as well as drink. God supplies our every need, including food and drink. And the boundary lines are the boundary lines of property given when the promised land was first divided up. The second of the present blessings are counsel and correction. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. Even at night? How often have you gone to bed to sleep with a problem? And when you wake up, there, it's solved. You know the solution. A fascinating but regular event. Who or what makes it happen? And thirdly, security. Verse 8. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. As Paul says in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? And the third part of the psalm, the prospects of the believer. The first of those, preservation from death, in verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. We often think the Old Testament doesn't speak about resurrection or life beyond death. This is an exception. This is a prayer of David, but it relates also to his successor in Jesus, the Son of God and to all his faithful ones. Paul says in Acts 13, 35 to 37, so it is also stated elsewhere, you will not yet let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. The path of life is made known to him. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life, the path set before us. God's way known before we'd even thought of it. And finally, joy in God's presence. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God is our joy, our fullness, the giver of every blessing. Let's return to verse 1. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. There's David hiding as an outlaw, pursued by Saul and his men, in danger of his life itself. How did he feel? Where did he put his trust? To whom could he turn for safety and refuge? I want to tell you a story about myself. 
May 2017. It's a lovely day in June. Sorry, in June 2017. It's a lovely day. The sun's beating down. It's really hot. The grass needs cut. So I go out, <coughs> get the lawnmower out. We've got quite a bit of grass around the house and it's on a slope. So it's actually, even though it's a motorised uh, lawnmower, it's quite difficult to, to do it. And as I'm cutting the grass, I think, could do with a drink. So I go into the garage to get a drink. And when I'm there, I suddenly think, I'm not feeling right. I'm going to faint. When I was young, I fainted a few times in my teens. So I got down to the ground as fast as I could, but I didn't faint. I had a seizure, a fit. My left leg started jerking, and then my right arm, my left arm started jerking. And I thought, what's going on here? I was conscious, I think, most of the time. I did manage to bite my tongue and my cheek. And once, one thing they don't tell you in medical school, by the way, is if you have a seizure and your leg's jerking, it's blooming sore. <laughs> they don't tell you that. So I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What's happened? And then I heard a voice. Now, I'm a doctor and a scientist. I don't think of things out of thin air. And the voice said, don't worry, I'll be with you. Whatever happens, I will be there. Fortunately, soon after that, my wife came out of the house to see if I wanted a drink, to find out what I was up to. So she got me into the house, ultimately taken off to Herr Myers, where they did a scan and discovered that I had a, a weird condition called an arteriovenous malformation. Now, basically, in your brain, like everywhere else in your body, you've got a big artery that comes in and gradually splits up into smaller and smaller blood vessels until it gets to the stage of capillaries. And they're what supply oxygen and food to the tissues and take in the carbon dioxide and the waste products. And then they all join together again and become veins. Well, an arteriovenous malformation is where the artery and the vein are joined together with nothing in between. So it's like a high-pressure situation. So I get sent off to see a neurosurgeon eventually, at the Queen Elizabeth, and he says to me, the arteriovenous malformation you've got is fairly big. I wouldn't advise an operation because the risk of an operation might be as big a risk as something else happening. Now, AV malformations happen or come to light usually when you have a seizure, but they can also happen when you have a bleed into your brain, a cerebral hemorrhage. And the risk of a cerebral hemorrhage is 2% per year. In other words, 1 in 50. And you have these things since you're born. So since I'm over 50, <laughs> unlike Dave McLaren, I reckon I've done pretty well and it can't be too bad. But he said he didn't advise an operation. I think he was right. So I get put onto tablets to stop me having any more seizures, which have fortunately worked all the time. But it made me think, you know, if that happens, something could happen tomorrow. It's the same with many of you. If you've had a heart attack or a stroke, you just never know when something could happen again. Or supposing you've got a bad chest or a bad immune system, and you get a chest infection. And in these days, how do you get to see a GP? How do you get into hospital? We've already lost two or three of our members from exactly that situation. 
or if you've got cancer. Because if you've got cancer, for most of the common types of cancer, the surgeon will say, oh, you're cured, but they don't actually know that. One cancer cell that's spread could mean that you're going to get secondary somewhere. So it's all a wee bit risky, worrisome. How do you know how long you've got? I once worked for a consultant who dealt with brain tumours. And whenever patients asked him the obvious question, how long have I got? You know what his answer was? Well, I don't know. You could walk in front of a bus tomorrow. <laughs> Always thought that was the most blooming cop-out that I've ever heard from a consultant in my life. So my view of it as a consultant has always been to give the patients the information about how long I really think they've got. And for example, if you've got prostate cancer, which is spread at an early stage, the answer to that question these days used to be two and a half years. It's now eight and a half years. That's how much science has moved on. But I always say to them, this is what your life expectancy is, provided nothing else happens. A week ago, what do you think the people in Turkey and Syria thought of their life expectancy? How many of them thought that tomorrow might be their last day? 28,000 have died so far. So I think it's important that we put our trust in God because we're safe in God's hand. We need to live for each day. We need to live each day for Jesus. What can you do? Can you help someone? <clears throat> can you show something of Jesus to someone? Many hymns speak of trust and obedience. Trust and obey. One of the bits of music I was thinking about using today, God is our refuge and strength. <clears throat> Psalm 46. All my hope in God is founded. My hope is built on nothing less. Do we thank God for each wonderful new day that he's given us? Each day is an opportunity to start afresh with God. Do we say, take the same attitude to life as seen in the close of Psalm 16, when it speaks to the path of life and joyful fulfillment through living before God's face? and enjoying lovely things at God's right hand all through our lives. The wonder of this life that God has given us to enjoy. The New Testament declares that our resurrection will involve the resurrection of the body. It will be a new form of this life, not an eternal bodiless life for a bodiless soul. God created our bodily life in this world so presumably God likes it. The psalm knows that if you want to enjoy a full life in this world, you're wise to look to the God who has devised this bodily life for us. But it's tempting to look in other directions. In Israel, it was tempting to look to other gods, to offer sacrifices to, to them, to call on them, to rely on them, to see them as the ones who give good things. The psalm knows that this way leads to trouble, not fulfilment. The writer always has his eyes on the Lord, has the Lord at his right hand. He is confident that he'll be okay because he does rely on the Lord alone, the one who guides him, 
the one whose voice he heeds in the darkness of the night. And the psalm also shares the image of each Israelite family having an allocation in the promised land as a whole. That's my allotted share, my cup, my allocation, my estate. It's lovely and precious to me. The psalm reminds us that we have a lovely place in a promised land, not just in the resurrection life. So are we comfortable and happy with what God has given us? Do we thank him for each new day? Do we live each day for Jesus? What does he want of us? Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Amen.